where all my children are the light Born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right My people are warriors, all we know is to fight Pray, they see God in everything I write yeah. Hey everybody, on this edition of On One with Angela Rye I have the opportunity to sit down with presidential candidate And Senator Kamala Harris We talk about her new criminal justice reform plan to transform the criminal justice system and re-envision public safety in America. We could not have that conversation without also talking about her record as a prosecutor, the California state attorney general, and also her record that she's building as a senator in Congress. We also have a secondary conversation that I moderate with three other people who are really into what's happening in the criminal justice system. Those people were Dee Watkins, Jamira Burley, and Philip Atibagoff. The conversation was enlightening. It was challenging. But I also think we had an enlightening conversation on the path forward. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to sit down with me. Of course. Um, It is so interesting to me that one of um, the things that you told me probably a little over a year ago, um, and I have since used it in speeches, Mm -hmm. is that um, in this work, I was lamenting over the 2016 election and just, I probably complained for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you said um, that in this work, you're not alone. Yeah. And since then, you've decided to embark on, I think, one of the most challenging um, probably in a lot of ways, lonely journeys. Oh, okay. Um, it's fine. We can leave it. Mm-hmm. Bloopers happen. Um, but what what are you doing to remind yourself right now Aww. that you're not alone? Well, uh, having conversations like this. Um, it's it's about um, there's so much more to 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 this process for me personally than the pundits and the pollsters. Mm-hmm. And for me, it really is about um, the people, mm-hmm. right? Like I often say that one of the greatest things about being in a campaign is that you end up meeting the angels walking among us, you know, people who you otherwise may not meet who are just doing incredible work in their communities mm-hmm. without any expectation of fame or celebrity. They're mm-hmm. just doing this incredible work. And that's what feeds me and reminds me that we who want to build our country and want to make it better, that we're not alone. And, um, and it also, Angela, it gives me a lot of, it, it really gives me a lot of hope and therefore optimism about where we are and where we can be. And, you know, my feeling about it is that this is a moment that requires us to have faith and to believe in what can be unburdened by what has been. Mm -hmm. And there are so many aspects of this process that reinforce that for me. So, um, You, I am assuming, have used this same hope to inspire you to write this criminal justice reform plan that you all have entitled Kamala's Plan to Transform the Criminal Justice System and Re-Envision Public Safety in America. That's right. That is a hell of a job. (laughs) 
like thinking about everything that this country is built on. How are you going to use that type of hope to inspire this work, but to also practically yeah. ensure it happens, it comes to fruition? Well, I mean, it's, it's also been part of my life's work. There's so much about this plan that is an extension of everything that I have seen firsthand, both in terms of opportunity and in terms of obstacle. Mm -hmm. And so there are components of this plan that are about, for example, saying we need to deal with mental health and mental health resources. Um, we need, and I can talk about that at length, both in terms of, um, the connection between that and undiagnosed and untreated trauma among folks who are growing up in a community where there's a lot of violence, but, but also communities where there's a lot of poverty. And usually those are the same communities. Um, I, I see based on my career and my, my experience, the work that needs to happen around accountability, um, meaning holding the system accountable, including law enforcement. There is what I know to be the contributors to America's failure around mass incarceration and what we can do to actually stem that. Um, Reentry, the work that I did that was about being one of the first in the nation to say there is another way. Um, which is that people who are, in my case, the, the, the what I did was people who were arrested for for drug sales, getting them jobs and counseling and support, and and reentering them into the community in a way that they don't reoffend. So there is so much about my career and my life's work that tells me that the plan that I have now rolled out is not only doable, but that is, it, it, it literally is, it's achievable based on how I know the system actually works and how it can be better. You have talked about um, your career and your life's work yeah. um, a couple of times, even just now. And I want to get into that in yeah. the record because there have been so many questions yeah. on your yeah. record. Um, but first, I want to just from a humanizing standpoint, yeah. I want to know what age you decided to be a lawyer. Oh, when I was I mean, when I was a child, I, I wanted to be, you know, it was Thurgood Marshall, and it was mm. Charles Hamilton Houston, it was Constance Baker Motley, it was those lawyers who were the architects of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And that was powerful. I mean, I'll never forget, you know, that iconic photograph of Thurgood mm -hmm. walking with his briefcase. Um, I'll never forget the stories about the power that these individuals had to fight a system that was in that was unjust and to make it just. Mm -hmm. And it was the lawyers who were doing that. It was the lawyers who were in those courtrooms who were saying, if you want to be faithful to this constitution and all of its amendments, then I'm going to hold you accountable. And the way that we're going to do that is to do it in a courtroom and, and with the skill of being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I decided when I was six, I think partially because I felt like my dad was a lawyer, but that's yeah. technically unauthorized practice of the law because he is not licensed. <laughs> but he was such an agitator and activist and advocate in the community. I know you share yeah. um, some similar experiences with your well, parents. Well, that's right. The civil they were, my parents were active in the civil rights movement, but also to the point of, of the models in your life. One of the people who helped raise me was my Uncle Sherman. Mm. Um, who also 
taught me how to play chess. Because he said, Kamala, and he said to Maya, to my sister, you need to understand that life is like a chessboard. And there are going to be a lot of different players on that board who have different moves. And you have to be able to see the whole board and see, all, you know, basically have a 360 perspective. And also his point was that you also need to be thoughtful about what step 10 is before you take step one. Because otherwise you may be knocked off the board. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing about Uncle Sherman is whenever anybody in the family or the extended family had anything go wrong or anything that they weren't sure about or anything that they felt was an injustice, they'd say, call Sherman. Mm -hmm. Call Sherman. He'll know what to do. Was he a lawyer? Yeah. Just, okay. He was a lawyer. He was one of the first black lawyers. Um, to, to actually in, in, in the Bay Area who did the kind of work that he did. But, but people knew. I mean, I just grew up hearing people say, call Sherman. Mm -hmm. He'll know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be that person. Right? So were you when you when did you decide to become a prosecutor? Because with, in our community, yes, no, no, that was much later. <laughs> I was on the National Black Law Association and being a prosecutor, like, that's what you're going to do. So how did much you later. arrive to that decision? It was I, you know, I was raised that you must be a fighter for justice. Mm -hmm. You know, I was raised with those words of King and, and others. Right. Which is what every you know, remember. King, I'll paraphrase, but famously said, you know, whatever you choose as your profession, you must be a fighter for, for civil rights and for justice. Mm -hmm. So when I went to law school, it was very much with that purpose. And um, and I, you know, I grew up knowing about the impact of the criminal justice system on my community, mm -hmm. on on my relatives, on 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 the people I care about. Yeah. And. You know, I mean, growing up, look, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend or a colleague who has not been the subject of some kind of racial profiling or misconduct. Mm -hmm. And my point was, look, I, let's go in there and um, and and fix the system, agreeing that there's a powerful place to 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 hold in the inside where the decisions are being made. I mean, Angela, the other thing is this. I was raised um, with many principles that we were taught, and one of them was self-determination, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, the way that that, what that meant to me then and now is, you know, you don't need to ask permission. Just go in there and get it done. And I, you know, there's something people should know about themselves. I'm not so good asking for permission. <laughs> so when I knew, when I wanted to change the criminal justice system, when I, you know, and I felt strongly about that, um, I decided, well, why don't I become a prosecutor in a way that I will be on the inside where I can be making the decisions. And also, frankly, where I can be a voice for the most vulnerable in our community. Mm -hmm. You know, I specialized for a long time in child sexual assault cases. Mm -hmm. I, I a, a large part of my career, the majority of my career was focused on um, the abuse and, and the harm against women and children. Um, I prosecuted, I mean, cases where, you know, women and children were treated horribly. I, and, I, and I would stand in front of a jury and I would say, look, the, the penal code wasn't designed just to protect your image of Snow White. 
So she may happen to be a drug addicted prostitute. That doesn't mean that she wasn't raped. Um, you know, I, 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 I said that these young women who are being picked up and called teenage prostitutes, no, they are being bought and sold. If you look at their background, a lot of them come out of the foster care system, they're runaways, and they are being exploited. And so we should not be treating them as criminals. And I, and I created one of the first safe houses for what I call sexually exploited youth saying they should not be put in the, they should not be putting in juvenile, they shouldn't be put in a juvenile hall. I could do all of that because I had the power. I didn't need to ask anybody permission. I was on the inside where I could do that kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I prosecuted a case, you know, like various forms of domestic violence, including this one case where this guy scalped his girlfriend, like literally scalped her. Um, and, and then, but then I was in a, an ability to also work with a physician who gave his pro bono time to help her with reconstructive surgery. You know, that was a lot of the work that I did. And, you know, in combination with being very active in my community, um, I started a mentor program for the, the, the young people in my community around getting them into museums. Um, I co-founded an auxiliary at the county hospital, Highland Hospital in Oakland, California, because my my rape victims would have to go to those rooms and the, it was awful the kind of conditions and i said we need to upgrade these facilities so that we can treat these women with dignity and give them a place where they are you know they're not you know being treated like just some statistic and you yeah. were doing a lot of this work um before progressive prosecutor was a thing. Oh, yeah. And arguably progressive prosecutor and um, that measurement stick has changed quite a bit. How do you think you have changed and evolved since then? <laughs> yeah. well, well, to your point, when I was doing this, and especially when I started, there is no question that I chose to go up the rough side of the mountain. <laughs> there is no question whatsoever. And, um, and really, you know, go against the current. Mm-hmm. When I became a prosecutor, you know, it was it was during that era that the crime bill of 1994 was passed, right. which Democrats supported. Mm-hmm. Um, in California, three strikes was passed. Did you support um, the crime bill, even though you weren't in a position to vote for it? Were you ever? No, I mean, I I wasn't actively involved with it, but mm-hmm. it was this is just this was what was happening in that yeah. time in America. Um you have to remember, this was what, what, when did cell phones come into be? Smartphones, probably I had 2000. A pager first. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I had a pager too. But I had you know, a pager in 1994. Well, the, I got it, a cell phone the next year. Smartphones, though. I'm oh, talking about know. with a camera and a video camera. I had the Motorola flip phone. It probably weighed five pounds. Right. I, I did too. I had that big one. Right. Exactly. And the, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> smartphones. Yeah. Now, I was probably doing this work for a good 15 years before smartphones, everybody had them, okay? Mm-hmm. I'll never forget. I, I would give speeches and I'd say the smartphone is probably one of the greatest advances in our fight for civil rights. You know why? Because what started happening with smartphones is that an individual could tape or videotape that arrest that person being chased when they were without a weapon, that person being shot in the back, 
the interaction and the words that were spoken during that detention. And all of a sudden, instead of that one individual talking about what had happened, where nobody would believe it, the world got to see it. And I would, it was really interesting because then people would come up to me and say, Kamala, what's happening all of a sudden with this? With this, you know, the, the, the excessive force and the racial profiling. And I'd say, you know, you sound like a colonist. Like, you know, you showed up there and because you're seeing it for the first time, you think it just started happening right. and that you discovered it. No, communities have known this for generations. And you're now seeing it. But part of what happened, and thanks in much greater part, but coinciding with, you know, Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. and with all of the incredible leadership and activism, is that there was a very steep kind of learning curve that America had that happened, you know, almost immediately given the whole, the, 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 the whole life of the criminal justice system in America, where people started to realize this system needs to be reformed. That was long after I entered the system trying to change it. You know, and so thankfully now the wind is in our sails thanks to the leadership of, of all of the folks that I mentioned. But back when I became a prosecutor, it was still, Democrats were talking about tough on crime. Yeah. And, but meanwhile, we were, we were creating programs that were about, you know, the first in the, one of the first in the nation reentry initiatives. Um, but were you tough on crime too? Look, when I was prosecuting child sexual assault cases, yes. Yes, I was. Yes, I was. Are there instances of being tough on crime that you regret now as a DA? Well, in terms of, look, I was, I was, I was in that system when things were happening that were, that led to America's mass incarceration problem. There's no question, but there is also, and so, and thankfully we are now at a place where the system is being required to change. And I, and I, know that I have been a part of helping that happen. Are we where we need to be? No. But I mean, just to your point in terms of, because I think you're also asking like, how, how have I thought about things during the, the course of time? Even your own evolution. I think like the point is um, for all of us, there are things that happened that I did that I said 10 years yeah. ago, 20 years ago maybe even 30 yeah. years ago, yeah. you know, uh, as a nine-year-old, that yeah. I wouldn't say now, mm -hmm. things that I wouldn't do now. And so the point is, if we allow um, candidates to be human the same way we are all human, then what are the missteps that we made that have helped us to course correct, to rehabilitate, speaking of rehabilitation, right, to, to change yeah. course and to do something different? Right. And so what I would say is this. For... There was a, a part of my career where I was not in charge. Mm -hmm. And so during that part of my career, where, and, that, and it's part of the reason I ran to become DA, so I could be in charge. Because when I wasn't in charge, I was in a system where, you know, it was during the height of the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. And we were prosecuting cases for people selling a couple rocks on the corner. And they were doing it out of, of, you know, for economic opportunity. Now, was I dismissing the cases when I knew that there was a search without probable cause? Yes, full time. But was I also, you know, had a stack of cases that were about the arrest for those kind of cases? Yes. Mm -hmm. Was that a flawed system? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
Look at fast forward how now, and I knew, you know, look, we have to do this differently. That's, but that's part of why I ran. Mm -hmm. That's part of what I ran. So I could actually be in charge of the system. And so when I was district attorney of San Francisco, we had, we, about tens of thousands of cases were about deferred prosecution where we would send people to, to community-based mental health or substance abuse treatment. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's part of the point about the importance of being able to and, 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 and agreeing and even encouraging that those of us who know how systems need to be reformed, that we not only are in places where we advocate from the outside, but that we're also places where we're in, in the inside and can actually have the authority without asking permission to actually change the system. And you went from um, DA to running for a California attorney general. state attorney general, mm -hmm. first black woman to yeah. do that. Um, how many people worked under you for context? Because I think that's important. People I understand. ran an office of almost 5,000 people in, and on any given day, we probably had 50,000 matters. And, um, and I got to hire eight people. <laughs> wow. In fact, I'll tell you when I first got there as attorney general and I learned, you know, and I realized that the thousands of people who work in the office, um, are, you know, I, I'm not hiring. I don't hire them. I, they, they're there. And so I decided to do a reception in every one of the offices because I was like, okay, I can't just run this place from the top down. It's going to have to be about knowing the folks who are. So I decided to have a reception in the various offices around the state, of which there are many. And I'd like have cookies and coffee or whatever. I cannot tell you the number of people who came up to me, shook my hand, smiled and said, you're my fifth AG. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Wow. Which made it very clear I was here before you, I will be here after you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I okay. mean, and to their credit, people who dedicated their careers and their lives to this public this this course of public service. But how but resistant were a lot of the five thousand to a black woman AG? Well, I mean, I'll tell you that it I would say that the resistance that I experienced was more about um when I, so when I wanted to do things like, for example, expose the criminal justice data, which had always been kept confidential. And I created actually one of the first in the nation open data initiatives where, you know, now I'm running the second largest Department of Justice in the United States, second only to the United States Department of Justice. And I said, we need to make this data public. Mm -hmm. All the advocates, all the folks shouldn't have to claw it in and get you know, public records request to get that data. I want to make it public. And so I opened it up. There was a lot of resistance to doing that. But, you know, if you are, you know, dogmatic, which I was, and, and made it happen and worked against a system that didn't want it to happen because it's never happened that way before, we were able to do it. And as a result, there are many advocates in California who will tell you that because that data is now public, they have the background and the evidence to talk about the disparities and inequities in the system. One of the things that has come up a lot during your time um, as AG in the state of California is the Daniel Larson case. Um, it has been widely discussed, of course, it's the case from 2012, um, where the courts threw out the conviction, but your office appealed, the um, saying that he stayed, uh, he, he needed to stay in jail because he didn't, um, release the proper paperwork on time. 
his file his release paperwork on time. Do you regret that the office appealed the Daniel Larson case? So let me say this. The, um, the way I sometimes more frequently than I'd like found out about cases that I disagreed with is when they became public because you see running an office of almost 5,000 people where there are 50,000 matters on any given day, a system Mm -hmm. can't work if everything comes before Mm -hmm. me, a system can't work if every brief that is filed in court every day, which there are tens of thousands, if not more come to my desk for me to review every day. But all of that being said, the buck stops with me. It's my name is on the piece of paper that's filed in court every day. Um, but there were, there are definitely cases that occurred when I was attorney general of California that I vehemently disagreed about. And when I found out about them, corrected course, Mm -hmm. but I didn't find out about all of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, during your inauguration, um, you said we are putting parents on notice. If you fail in your responsibility to your kids, we are going to work to make sure you face the full force and consequences of the law. Is that something you regret now or wish you could course correct on? So let me tell you what that whole area of work was about. When I was district attorney... And we had, as in every major city, a large homicide caseload, wherein the vast majority of the victims of homicide are black men, men of color, under the age of 25. Mm -hmm. I said to my staff, instead of just sitting back and prosecuting all these cases, I'm going to ask a question which is not being asked. Who are these victims? Who are they? Like, what is happening here? Instead of just accepting the fact that it is normal, that this is what would be happening. And so we did a study, and it turned out of the homicide victims who were under the age of 25, 94% were high school dropouts. I then went over to the school district, and I asked the superintendent of schools, what is going on? And she said, Kamala, of the chronically and habitually truant students, 40% are elementary school students who are missing 50, 60, up to 80 days of a 180-day school year. And I said, this is outrageous. Why isn't anybody talking about this? Why aren't we reading about this on the front page of the paper? Why has this not been a platform? Why aren't the alarm bells going off? Because, by the way, an elementary school truant is three to four times likely to be a high school dropout At the time, 80% of the prisoners in the United States were high school dropouts. A black man who was a high school dropout in between the age of 30 and 34 is two-thirds likely to be in jail, have been in jail, or dead. So, I convened the school district with the help of the the superintendent of schools, and I said, this is serious, and we're going to start holding people accountable. I went, and I went to the superior court judge presiding judge. And I said, we need to bring in the system to be held accountable for these kids. Mm -hmm. And the reason I went through the court system is because I knew that it would be through the court that we could actually subpoena 
all these public officials to come in and be accountable for these statistics and talk about what are we going to do to actually get resources for the families and for the parents. And I'm going to tell you that that whole initiative never had any intention. I certainly never had any intention of putting any parent in jail. No parent ever went to jail. We improved attendance by over 30%. And it included cases like, I'll never forget this one case, because we were, we were, we forced the system to actually ask, why is that child not in school? Instead of just accepting that the child's not in school. I'll never forget of the many cases, there was a case involving, it turned out, a parent who was holding down two jobs, raising three children by herself and homeless. She was just trying to hold it together. But nobody had asked the question. So nobody had said, hey, there are these services. There is this kind of support that we should be giving her. And that was the initiative. And the initiative was about saying that the system needs to be held accountable for these children because I, you know what I know. If those same statistics had occurred in rich neighborhoods, the alarms would have gone off. There would be alerts all over the city. But we were talking about black and brown children. We were talking about poor children. And the, the, the crude reality of it is that the system did not expect much from those children and did not create a state of shock and an urgency around getting them in school every day. Would you extend the program on a federal level or try to figure out ways to adjust tru or address truancy on a federal level the same way that you... Yeah, and but, but as president, it would be really doing it through the Department of Education. Right. I did it through the mechanisms I had. Because mm -hmm. I wasn't running the city. I wasn't running the county. I wasn't running the state. Do but you I'm think the you. Department of Education is more suited to handle truancy issues? Yeah, I do. And I also think that, um, I mean, look, that's why when I was attorney general, I created in the California Department of Justice the Bureau of Children's Justice. Mm -hmm. I, when I, because I, I realized that there was nobody who is paying attention at a statewide level to children's issues as a general matter and holding the system accountable. So I actually sued school districts around things like how they were disproportionately treating black and brown kids when I became attorney general, because then I had a, a different lever. But the reality of it is that government is not being held accountable for how it is treating poor children. Mm -hmm. There is no accountability. And it has to be. When I became attorney general, I required, I, I because I had the power to do it, published the truancy statistics for every county in the state of California, a state of 40 million people. And then all of a sudden, um, newspapers started reporting about it. Mm -hmm. And then the public started saying, school district, what are you doing about all these kids who are not in school? I was talking about this issue when nobody at that level was talking about it. Because I know where those children end up. And I know I don't want to be in a position of prosecuting a case and having that child end up in the criminal justice system when the system failed that child from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it was about holding the system accountable. That's the entire purpose of it was about holding the system accountable, which we did. In the last Democratic debate, there was this astonishing, at least I thought it was astonishing, mm -hmm. attack from Tulsi Gabbard mm -hmm. on your record. Um, she talked about 1,500 mar marijuana convictions while you were AG, um, that you blocked evidence that would have gotten Kevin Cooper off death row, that um, you encouraged prison labor um, for wildfires um, and it wanted to extend the prisoner's sentences 
And in 2004, you pushed to increase cash bail. What do you say to those you looked like, okay, I don't even have time to deal with all this. You have a little bit more time. To but it was extraordinary because it actually, and you know what? I don't even need to respond. I will, of course, but mm-hmm. there have been independent um, reviews of what she said that across the board found inaccuracies, if not flat out lies. Well, the folks who are still tweeting about it might need yeah. to know what the, like, what the facts are. So from your vantage point. Yeah. I mean, we can listen. Um, first of all, There is no question that I have spent my entire career focusing on reforming the criminal justice system. Um, When you're talking about the marijuana cases, as attorney general, I didn't prosecute marijuana cases. I didn't prosecute any cases the DAs did. So that's just a flat out lie. We didn't prosecute marijuana cases. I was running the, you know, the, the, the California Department of Justice. I was taking on the five big banks of the United States, bringing $20 billion back to the homeowners of California. Mm -hmm. I was taking on pharmaceutical companies and big oil companies and prosecuting them when everybody else was shuddering in their boots about these 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 powerful special interests. Um, in, in the Kevin Cooper case, when I found out what was going on there, I made a, a demand and a request and a demand that there be DNA testing. When I found out about that case, because I have always been about saying that we need to test DNA. Let me tell you, when I became Attorney General of California, there was this extensive backlog of rape kits Mm -hmm. that nobody, everybody said, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. I got rid of that backlog in one year because I have always been about saying we need the science to prove innocence or guilt, Mm -hmm. but it has to be a priority. So, you know, I, it was obviously a political attack. It was meant to, um, you know, distort my record mm-hmm. because this is somebody who was running against me. I think that then the reality of it is, um, especially on social media, people fall victim to the echo chamber that exists and there's not any due diligence on whether an article is real or fake I know. on whether, you know, I think on my Wikipedia pages, for example, they have on there, somebody decided that I'm a Haitian American lawyer. <laughs> My great grandfather's <laughs> Haitian, and that's cool. All power to uh-huh. folks in Haiti, but that's not real yeah. life. So, the the point that I that I really want to lean into here is you have a whole record to yeah. stand on, and mm-hmm. just like every other human being, right. politicians also evolve. Yeah. Was there an evolutionary moment for you? In your yeah. Career? So, um, you know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with um, a bunch of leaders, um, activists opinion leaders, thought leaders in the criminal justice reform movement. And um, they were asking me about where do I stand on independent investigations of police departments and police shootings, and particularly police shootings. And they said, well, we're not clear about where you stand because you, in the past, said you don't believe in taking cases. And so while you were AG, well, but um, let me tell you about this, but before this, so when I was district attorney, um, I was in office after being elected less than a hundred days when there was a police officer who was killed in the line of duty. Now, um, and I did not seek the death penalty. I had also run on a platform of not 
of, of, of I personally opposed to the death penalty. I've always been, always made that very clear. People wanted to take my case from me because they wanted a death penalty um, charge. Democrats in very high levels of authority and position wanted my case taken from me. People tried to take my case from me. And my point was, you're not taking my case from me. I was elected. Everybody is clear about where I stand on an issue. I have used my discretion to determine what is right for this case. You're not taking my case from me. And they tried and they tried and they tried. People were protesting against my office and against me. There were all, I mean, it was, it was a whole thing. Mm-hmm. And even Democrats were trying to take my case from me. And I said, look, I was elected on this platform. I was elected to do this job. Ain't nobody going to come in here and tell me what to do. If people don't like what I'm doing, they'll vote me out of office. So I kept my case. I had to fight to keep it, and I kept my case. Later, years down the road, people are saying, go in and take the cases from DAs around police shootings. And I said, I'm not in favor of, Mm. I'm not taking any DA's case. Because of your experience. Yeah. For me, it was principle. Because I knew how people were trying to come in and take my case. So my principle was, I'm not taking any case from an elected DA. Because, I mean, it was a profound experience. Mm -hmm. The fight I had to keep my case. And for me, it was a principle. You're not taking my case from me. How many black DAs are there in the country? When I was elected DA, um, I was the first black woman elected DA in a state of 40 million people. Um, And there were, I think, four of us who are black elected DAs in major cities in America when I was elected DA. You see why our perspective might have been a little different than yours. It's just not enough. But so so that's where so that's where I came from. So so I am in favor of independent investigations. Mm -hmm. I am in favor of independent investigations. Absolutely. It's part of my plan. I am in favor of independent investigations. There need to be independent investigations. But on that issue of taking my case, that cut deep for me. Mm -hmm. And that's where I came from. And it was a personal experience that deeply influenced how I felt about the issue. But there should be independent investigations. There's no question. And I am a proponent of that. I'm advocating for it. It's in my plan. My mom says the most important skill we can learn in life is perspective taking. Mm -hmm. And this was one of those moments for me because I'm like, what's wrong? Just, Mm -hmm. but yeah, if you hadn't started with this take, they took my, or trying to take my case and yeah. Some cases mm-hmm. still need to be taken from some people, though. But you, know, but you understand what I'm saying, no, I right? Get it. Like, I get how it. dare these total people? How dare these people come in and want to take my case from me? Because you know, it was, it was literally, it was like, like, how dare you? I'm independently elected. Yeah. You're not gonna come in here and play daddy. But so was Meek Mill's judge. Uh, no, I know, but I'm just saying Oof. that this is where I came from, and yeah. so it's, I, it, it influenced my perspective. Yeah in a very profound way. Um, But I am in favor of independent investigations. So for your um, transition to becoming the first black woman senator from the state of California. And second only in the United States. Second only. Mm -hmm. um, You have had 
quite the job, mm-hmm. um, challenging members of Congress who are trying to tell you that it's not your time or you're being disrespectful mm-hmm. um, in committee hearings um, and very much being um, the voice of the people mm-hmm. there. Um, you've also had a robust uh, legislative agenda, also mm-hmm. taking on some of the, the things that you taught in your criminal mm-hmm. justice platform. What are some of the highlights, um, some bills that you've introduced, co-sponsored mm-hmm. that you want folks to be aware of? Um, maybe yeah. even a signature um, yeah. achievement or one of your proudest moments. I know we don't have a lot of time. Oh, well, there are there are a few. Um, one is I've been a leader in the United States Senate on what we need to do to get rid of the cash bail system in America. And, um, and why? Because I know the system from the inside. And I know that when we are talking about the issue of bail, the fact is that there are people sitting in jail every day in America for days, weeks, months, even years, waiting to go to trial simply because they can't afford to pay the money to, to bail out. Whereas the person who's got the money is out fancy free waiting to go to trial. So this for me is not only about criminal justice, it's about economic justice. So knowing that it's about economic justice and knowing that this is actually an issue that impacts any and everybody in the criminal justice system based on their wealth, in addition to race, um, I knocked on the door of a Republican senator by the name of Rand Paul. Rand Paul and I agree on almost nothing, but we agree on this. And we have a bill that is a bipartisan bill to reform the cash bail system in America. And the thing about it is that when we when we got the bill together, you know, he said to me, you know what, Kamala? Appalachia loves it. Because those poor people in Appalachia know the same thing that the poor people in Compton or in, you know, Chicago or anywhere else know, which is that this is about economic justice. I'm very proud of that bill. I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm, I feel very strongly about is what we need to do around securing our nation from foreign interference. Mm-hmm. I've got, I'm on the Senate Intelligence Committee. I'm on the Senate Homeland Security Committee. So I have a bill that's about improving the infrastructure of our election system. Why? Because Russia interfered in the election of the president of the United States. And Angela, you know what they did to target the, the election? They, they, they tried to play on the issue of race. They tried to get people all fired up on the issue of race, knowing that that's America's Achilles heel. Um, there's work that I'm doing that has been leadership around what we need to do to and the um, the black maternal mortality rate because black women are three to four times more likely to die in connection with childbirth than any other women in America. So I'm a leader on that, which is to say that at its core, this is about racial bias in the healthcare delivery system, which is that that black woman, when she walks into that hospital, that clinic or that doctor's office, her concerns are not being taken seriously. And we need to address this because it is having fatal consequences. Um, I'm dealing with the issue as, as a leader on the issue of, um, as one of the leaders on the issue of, of, of incarcerated women. Because in America today, there are women who are being shackled during childbirth. Um, so there are a number of issues, but uh, there, is, there is a lot of good work to be done when you are in a position of power where you don't have to ask permission and you can actually make things happen. And for me, 
my whole goal, you know, back to just kind of being raised around the concept of self-determination and, and, you know, get things done is about being in places where it's not about me giving a lovely speech or a grand gesture, but actually fixing the system. And sometimes it means working against the current. Sometimes it means having the wind in your sails. Um, but I'm never going to stop fighting. I am never going to stop fighting and I'm never going to stop rolling up my sleeves and getting into a system that might be messy and dirty, but if we're not there, it will happen without us. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a tweetable moment for all those tweeting. Say. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for making the time. We are wrapped now. I didn't ask permission. <laughs> I will not apologize. Yeah. I needed to get some stuff out. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So um, thank you all so much for being here, um, for having us here to talk about um, criminal justice reform, the criminal justice system and all the things that are challenging with it. And of course, your criminal justice reform plan. Um, I would love to first welcome the senator, Kamala Harris. Um, And I also want to make sure that we introduce the rest of um, our conversants. So um, Jameera Burley is a social justice advocate and activist. Uh, we have Dr. Philip Atiba-Goff, who's going to go by Phil for the duration of okay. the conversation. He's okay. co-founder and president of the Center for Policing Equity, as well as a John Jay College professor. And Dee Watkins is editor at large at Salon and a lecturer at the University of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So that is it. Mm-hmm. So let's jump right in. Um, Oftentimes in my um, speeches, Mm -hmm. I ask people in the audience, um, more often than not, they are black audiences, Mm -hmm. surprise, Um, and I ask them often how many um, of them have family members who have been incarcerated or are currently incarcerated, and normally it's the entire room. And so for the purposes of Hmm. that illustration, how many of us now have that had that same experience? Will you just raise your hand? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's a good place to start because for so many of Mm us, criminal justice uh, is something that is deeply personal, Mm -hmm. um, deeply emotional. And I think for that reason, it would be great to just jump right in. So Dee, if you could start with your own personal experience, I know we were talking a little bit offline about that, that would be great. So I think, um, thank you. Absolutely. Um, and thank you for having me here. Of course. I think the biggest thing that I fear or the thing that bothers me the most is not just the amount of close friends and family members that I have who are currently incarcerated right now, but what's waiting for them when they come home. Yeah. Um, we were joking a little bit before you came, but it's it's a, it's a truth. Um, a lot of my friends, my best friend is doing 27 years nonviolent drug crime. And... Some of our other friends who came home from that same indictment, it's like they, they struggle to like, yeah. their, you know, to find their footing and to figure out what they're going to do with the rest of them lives. Um, yeah. Three of my friends have clothing lines and I've, I've bought so many sweatsuits that I'm never going to wear. You know what I'm saying? But I'm kind of, I don't, I don't want to see you. I don't want to see you in That's present, right. but mm-hmm. I just I want to know what what can we do to make sure that people who do come home are getting some of those, um, not just the job training skills, but some of the soft skills they need right. so that they can properly assimilate. That's right. So we can, do you want to get into it now? Yeah, if okay. you want to start. Yeah, um, there, there's no question. I mean, I've one of the, I think, most significant um, pieces of work that I've been involved in is has been about reentry. Um, 
which of course does not deal with the fact that we need to deal with the, the mass incarceration problem in America. We need to deal with um, the failed war on drugs. We need to deal with all of that. But but talking about just the folks who are reentering after after incarceration. Um, it, there are a number of things we need to do. First of all, we need to just start with how we think about it. And I think about it um, mostly in the context of an age-old principle. You know, the Bible teaches us about redemption, right? The point being that we will all make mistakes. And for some, that mistake will rise to the level of being a crime. But it, and of course, there should be consequence and accountability. But a civil society, a just society, a fair society allows people a way to earn their way back and give them the support to do that. We're not doing that. So to your point, folks are coming out after they have done their time, they have served their time. And there is nothing that has been put in place in any meaningful way to allow them to get back on their feet. And it relates to a number of things from what we need to do to reinstate their voting privileges, mm -hmm. what we need to do to immediately when they come out, make sure that we are giving access, meaningful access to housing and get rid of the, the things that prevent folks from having access to public housing in particular, which is one of the things I, I've been working on in the Senate. Um, we need to ban the box, right, which then prohibits without that folks from getting a job. Because they are immediately labeled as somebody who is apparently, according to the system as it exists, undeserving of, of employment, which, of course, we know is not the case. There is the stuff that we need to do that's about training around soft skills. And so that's something that with my back on track program that we dealt with a lot, which was, you know, teaching a number of things, including, look, when you walk into the job, people are going to look at the clock. And if you're not on time, they're going to make decisions about your character. Um, teaching folks if you're going to have a supervisor and that supervisor may give you some feedback you don't like. They're not trying to start a fight, um, but this is the nature of working. You're going to have a supervisor, the soft skills, um, you know, teaching folks that it doesn't matter if you're wearing the same clothes three days a week, go back to work because what's most important is the way that you, you perform, not, not that. Um, but it's also giving people the support around training. And, you know, ultimately it's not only about redemption. It is, I think about seeing the capacity in human beings. And, um, I think that's where we have failed, but that's all posting post incarceration. And then we could have a much lo longer conversation about what we need to do to, 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 to stem what is otherwise a system of mass incarceration. Um, Phil or Jameer, do either of you have personal experiences that you want to share, um, either from family members or friends that kind of touched you and jolted you into this space? Yeah, I mean, I started, I'm originally from Philadelphia, um, and I come from a, a community that for many people is very hopeless um, because mass incarceration and gun violence is a normal occurrence. And for a long time growing up, I just assumed that this was the norm, right? seeing relatives go to prison. Both of my parents are repeat ex-offenders um, and almost half of my brothers have spent time in incarceration. 
And I think for me, my struggle with over the last 15 years in doing activism is understanding that the system is broken at every single angle. And I think most folks, particularly community members, um, at best believe the system is broken, at worst believe that the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do, which is to oppress and criminalize black and brown folks. So I guess for me, beyond the policy and potential culture change that needs to happen with our criminal justice system, how do we restore or build trust with the public to look at our justice system as something that they they feel comfortable calling the police, right? They don't see the police as the enemy, but rather someone who's there to help and alleviate the trauma. Well, I mean, at the core, as you've said, um, the issue is trust. Mm -hmm. And there is a history and empirical evidence that supports that feeling of distrust. Right. So part of it has to be one that leaders um, acknowledge the history. Right. People aren't delusional. People aren't making it up. People aren't hypersensitive. This is a fact. Um, You can look at the history in America of law enforcement enforcing Jim Crow. You can I mean, we can just go on and on. Including current day practices. So there is that piece of it. But then there is a piece that is about um, restructuring the system in a way that we actually create accountability for acts that 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 will result in distrust. So that's about creating accountability for law enforcement and creating standards that are for prosecutors and police officers that are about requiring accountability and consequence for bad behaviors. Because part of the distrust is that the community also sees that when there is a violation of trust, there's no consequence. So part of my proposal, for example, is, um, and I think it's actually the only one, that says we need to have a, a, a standard of review from police misconduct based on um, reasonableness of conduct. And we need to we need to have accountability for prosecutors as well. Um, There are the issues that are about whose responsibility is it to build those relationships of trust. And I think for too long, we have put the onus on the community to build. Well, or and or to work on how the, the relationship, the reciprocal relationship of trust should occur instead of putting the responsibility equally, if not more, on those who have actually created the distrust in terms of how the system works. Right. And so that relates to a number of things. You know, when I was attorney general of California, we created the first implicit bias and procedural justice training for police officers like that needs to happen around the country which is about the system saying you are operating with bias. Let's not pretend you're not because everybody does. But when your job involves carrying a gun, when your job involves having the authority to make a decision on the spot about depriving someone of their liberty, be it because it's a detention or because it's an arrest, then the bias needs to be checked at the door. And we're going to have to deal with that before we just let this, you have that exercise, that authority in a way that will result in an injustice. So these are some of the examples, but it is also about, again, speaking truth about the fact of the history and the, and the legitimate reason. And by by the way, again, as a point of emphasis, not distant history, Mm -hmm. history that started a long time ago and continues literally today at this very moment.
And then talking about who has the responsibility for, um, for working on actively on the relationship of trust, who has the authority to actually institute a system that can be more accountable when there are violations of trust and then implementation. And Phil, you mentioned um, before we started rolling your um, thoughts about the police system review board that the senator just uh, mentioned. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and what your thoughts were on that plan? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, we started this conversation and people are talking about uh, personal stories and we're talking about reentry and we're talking about policing. But the way the shorthand we talk about um, for criminal justice reform is mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. um, and during this administration, at least in 2017, when there was about $220 million worth of philanthropic money mm. put towards criminal justice reform and the federal government basically turned off that faucet. Yeah. We're talking That's about the, right. the back end, we're talking about the front end, but 200 million of that 220 went to decarceration efforts, yeah. 10 million to reentry, 10 million to policing. So it's, we started talking about like it's criminal justice reform and reentry, mm -hmm. criminal justice reform mm -hmm. right. and policing. Mm -hmm. right. right. So I, I am I am frustrated by the fact that the national conversation mm -hmm. has been so very little about the ways in which the, the full ways in which the community feels yeah. the effects of these systems. Yeah. Um, and the thing, part of what I want to see as we move um, through the primary process and through the general is a, an elevated mm -hmm. national conversation. So the, I think you call it the the National um, Police Systems Review Board, yeah, right? Right. Um, <clears throat> sort of modeled after the, the National Transportation Safety right. Board, that's right? That's exactly right. That's, um, that's the model. And, and the idea is essentially that these aren't individual failures, they're systems failures yep. if we decide that we don't want our systems to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so... I guess, I guess to the degree that there's a question, because there's so much frustration um, yeah. coming, just walking in the door with these issues, to the degree that there's a question, talk about how this plan that you have and the way in which you're, you're planning to campaign and then eventually to lead yeah. um, can recenter through the National Police uh, Systems Review Board um, and through the rest of what you're doing for um, reentry and through policing can recenter the community and in the proportion that the community is feeling the weights of these systems. You know, a lot of it comes down to accountability, right? Um, and, you know, it, I, to your point in terms of how we have structured the system, and I say this as a former prosecutor, when we talk about accountability in the criminal justice system, that word, I, I bet if you did a word cloud, it is always as applied to the person who was arrested. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. If we talk about consequence, it is always applied to that person. It is rarely applied to the system. And I think this gets back to points about trust, right? It, you know, if, if, because trust at its core is about a reciprocal relationship. You give and you receive trust. You don't just get trust without giving, right? And so if we're going to talk then about equal responsibility, there has to be equal responsibility around consequence and accountability. And that's, that is, that is a big part of the failure of the entire system. Cause I agree with you. It, it has been about mass incarceration or it's about law enforcement accountability, or it's about reentry. But, um, so that's where I start in terms of the perspective. And, and then it has to be about, frankly, um, when we're talking about then about accountability of the system, 
the, the model is the NTSB, right? The Na National Transportation Safety Board, which is from a national perspective, having a clearinghouse that is both around auditing, but around tracking. And to get into the weeds, that's where we actually um, can talk about things like data collection and transparency in data. When I was Attorney General of California, I created the first in the nation open data system for any Department of Justice. And I ran, again, the second largest Department of Justice. Why did I do that? Because I knew too often folks are talking anecdotally about what's wrong with the system and have not been given the data or try to claw it out of the system with public records requests, journalists try, advocates try. And I said, nope, we're going to open this up because when people start looking at the numbers, they will see that the numbers speak for themselves around disparities, around arrest rates, around disparities, around incarceration, um, charging disparities, all of that stuff. So part of it in terms of the, 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 the national focus is on accountability of the system, the system being held accountable, but giving all who should hold the system accountable, including the system itself, the data and the information. And that's going to be about tracking. It's going to be about shifting the responsibility from community to prove it to the government to prove it. You know, there's so much about how I think about a lot of these issues that is about shifting the burden mm -hmm. of proof or at least shifting it in a way that it is actually will be effective in getting the thing done, which is again, accountability and consequence for bad behaviors. Yeah. Do you mind if I have to follow up on it? Cause you're talking about accountability and shifting it over. And I know that, you know, I'm from Philly too. Yeah. Every, everybody in, in hey. um, I won't say it's the greatest city in the history of the it, world. It definitely um, is. The greatest city. I, I shouldn't no, say that. I shouldn't declare it openly. I'm not asserting it. I'm just, it's on the record. I'm, it's not that I'm a scientist. I'm just saying it's proven. Um, okay. So I know every, every community will that appreciate that. That is Mike. <laughs> This is not CNN. Um, <laughs> but I will say, <laughs> but I will say um, that when we talk about accountability, about when I, I mean, you know, I work inside a police department, yeah. right? And we work between police and communities. And oftentimes those conversations feel hopeless, not just from the community side, but from the law enforcement side. They say, we're a tool. We're a political tool and we're a tool of the community. And you're asking us to solve problems that we can't solve. And there have been consequences in these communities for generations. Because we're asking them to solve poverty. We're asking them to solve mental health. And there's no differentiation right. of how we're actually utilizing the services within the system to actually meet the needs of the public. Instead, we're just calling the police for every single occurrence. And that's the accountability that, that law enforcement, I was, I was uh, telling Angela earlier today, I got a call from a chief yesterday saying, when are folks going to talk, start talking about the trauma um, and, and mental health illness that's going on? within law enforcement mm -hmm. who are witnessing yeah. the same thing in the communities that communities are feeling. Yeah. When are we going to hold government accountable for the legacy of what's been going on in those communities? That's not a criminal justice outcome, but it's a health outcome. Yeah, but there is, there is that thing where, I mean, there's a lot to unpack by what we're mm -hmm. talking about right now, right? Because there is also that whataboutism thing that happens that when we're having a conversation about one flaw in the system mm -hmm. and then that 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 becomes the target then it's well what about this other thing yeah and so i think we all have to agree that it's a complex system with discrete parts all of which have to be addressed mm -hmm. um but i would also say that that i think part of the the issue stepping back is is the responsibility of law enforcement to 
make sure there is consequence and accountability for crime mm-hmm. or is the responsibility of law enforcement to ensure public safety? Well, then that makes me ask you the question of how do you define justice? Well, but then there's that and there is that point. But but the reason I go to public safety versus consequence and accountability yeah. for crime is that if the goal is public safety, then we have to necessarily get into well, what creates safe communities. Mm-hmm. And what creates safe communities is recognizing that undiagnosed and untreated trauma among children who are growing up in high violence communities or in poverty, because, by the way, poverty is trauma inducing. Yeah, yep. Poverty is violence. Right. We shouldn't you know, have to acknowledge that trauma because, like, they're paid to be there. We live in these places. So it's like you can't deal with that trauma on their own time. Well, that's like, they that's actually paid. why he was just saying um, that the government is responsible for the wellness of the officer. Because I can I can understand when he first said it. I was like, wait a minute. We got to be responsible for that, mm-hmm. too, now. But if they're being sent into point. communities, it's like... Mm-hmm. They didn't need to be held. Plus, they also like, have been able to historically not be held accountable for the things that they do, right. rather it's blowing off a per- an unarmed person's head or stealing or whatever. Like police officers have historically not been held accountable um, because they 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 protect and serve the rich, and then they just harass and take up space um, in poor communities. I don't see any type of big shift happening with the one term because it's like a cultural thing. So I think, um, you know, just to build on everything that was said is how do we even change the stigma or change that culture? Because I will not I don't call the police for anything unless you break into my car or you break into um, my house. Then I need a report for insurance. Mm -hmm. Other than that, if you rob Mm -hmm. me, put a gun on me, I'm not calling the police because it's never like they're not going to come with a magnifying glass and a clipboard and take notes and solve the crime. They're just going to come and make me even more annoyed than the situation that led to me Mm -hmm. calling them anyway. And too many people Mm -hmm. felt like that. I'll tax tax dollars have to pay for them, but we can't use them. Yeah. Unless we own property. Right. <laughs> right. Wow. So how do you like how do we change that? And I think that's too much of a job for one person to, you know, to sit here and say, well, if I win, I'm gonna switch culture. But how do we start to build towards changing that culture? And what does that conversation look like on a national scale? Mm-hmm. I think it needs to be a barrier between police <laughs> and community members. I don't know what that barrier is. If it's like justice of the peace type dude with a uniform and no gun. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what that is, but I think that we don't talk to police and they don't want to deal with us. So who's going to mediate that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that again, part of it is because if you look at the history of policing in America, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually interesting and, um, slave catches. But also, um, it was when people started having televisions in their homes and watching civil rights demonstrations Mm -hmm. and started all of a sudden in their home, they were seeing all this, what they interpreted as chaos and said, well, we want, you know, there was a shift where then you also saw a real pretty significant shift around the role of law enforcement, where it wasn't just that, police officer kind of walking the community who lived in the neighborhood, but ended up being something else that is what it has evolved into being. I mean, not that putting aside the other piece of it, right. Which is enforcers of, of Jim Crow enforcers of, of all of those. But I, I just going back, how do we change the system? I think part of it is it has to be about saying, what is the goal? And the goal has to be about safe communities. If the goal is about safe communities, if we reordered the conversation Mm -hmm. to say, what do we need to do to create safe communities? Because I think part of the issue is that in some people's mind, 
The only way you achieve safe communities is to have a law enforcement presence. For white communities. It's crazy. But, right. <laughs> but, 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 the, but, but the point being mm-hmm. that it's, we have to reorder how people understand safe happens. Mm-hmm. Safe happens by having, you know, resources in a community. Mm-hmm. Safe happens by addressing undiagnosed and untreated trauma. Safe happens by having like literally economic opportunities. Safe happens when people don't, you know, when, when we're addressing undiagnosed and untreated trauma and understanding that can lead to self-medication, which is going to lead to drug addiction, Mm -hmm. right? And then drug addiction is going to lead to other acts of desperation, right? That will, you know, eventually lead to incarceration. And so I just think that there is that part of it, which is also about us agreeing that, that among what we should think about as civil rights is the right to everybody to live in a safe community. And so then how do we achieve that? And if we, if we think about it that way, then we understand, well, that's not going to be about reacting to crime after it happens. That's going to be about preventing it before it does. And then you don't have to be really creative to figure out how, what, what prevention looks like. It looks like putting those kinds of resources into a community. And it's not like we haven't been doing that. We've been doing that in the suburbs for generations. Right. Right. But it's not like we don't know how to have a public safety system where people feel comfortable playing in the streets. We have that all across America. That's why people feel it's intentional, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things uh, I appreciate about your your plan is like the reinvestment of community programs. Yeah. We know we spend more in this country per prisoner than we do per student. Mm -hmm. And so it talks about our priorities. There's a connection between those two facts. Exactly. So for my question would be then, how do you see education as a deterrent or other additional social services programs as deterrents to violence? Elementary school truant is three to four times likely to be a high school dropout. 70% of the prisons in the United States are high school dropouts. A black man who is between the age of 30 and 34 and a high school dropout mm-hmm. is two-thirds likely to be in jail, have been in jail, or dead. It's not complex math. Yeah. Then let's connect that to another issue, which is, um, okay, I'm going to try and connect these dots, so just have some patience with me. If a black child has a black teacher before the end of third grade, they're 13% like more likely to go to college. If that child has had two black teachers by the end of third grade, they are 32% more likely to go to college. Okay, now add another point. Black students come out of college with the highest amount by far of student loan debt. I could go backward and talk about how home ownership rates actually have a big impact on that because black families are like 10%, I think, home ownership versus 40% or something like that for, for white families. Right. And how do you get student loan debt? Cause you have to take out those big loans instead of your parent being able to say, honey, I'll just refinance the house to give you some of the, the, the money out of the house. Okay. Well, so this a lot of different facts, right? Um, we need more black teachers. We need to we need to reinforce the public education system in America. We need to put resources into black and brown communities around public education because we are seeing the highest rates of high school dropouts as compared to those white suburban neighborhoods. And it is it has nothing to do with the capacity of those children. 
It has everything to do with the fact that we are not putting the resources into those schools and into those neighborhoods. You know, I mean, I do believe strongly that one of the biggest, um, knowing it's a complex issue that you raise, but one of the biggest areas of focus is to infuse resources into public schools with a particular emphasis on communities where we see rates, high rates of poverty, where we see, you know, violence, where we see, look at schools where you have high number of foster care kids, right? They're objective factors, which we have shown when you pay attention to them actually, and then put resources um, to address them that you actually see great outcomes. Because it's just a fact that the larger proportion of students who graduate high school, the, the less crime you're going to have in a community. It's actually just a fact. So that's one. But there is also what we need to do around community mental health and putting resources back into that. It is also, you know, I, I want to put a nurse in every school as part of my proposal. Because, you know, it is, you know, often the first time that a child will have access to somebody other than that child's family is when they start school. And so that's going to be the first time objective eyes are set on that child that might be able to detect, oh, he actually just can't hear some stuff. We need to test his hearing or he needs glasses as opposed to he's a bad child or he just, you know, isn't paying attention. Anyway, it's complex, but I do believe that one of the main areas of focus has to be about putting resources into public education and public schools. And you talk about it being complex. And to Dee's last point, he's like, I don't know how one person can do all of this. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a plan that speaks directly to decades of um, failed criminal justice programs. Mm -hmm. So what's the first step? So if we can just get to the first step, maybe we can figure out how this may actually be doable for a person, maybe some good supporters like Dee, <laughs> who wants to see some changes can sign up for that. But. Well, I mean, there's the issue of mass incarceration with all due respect to the point that you've made, because I, I agree with that. But there is that. And so that's going to be about what we need to do around sentencing reform, getting rid of mandatory minimums. Um, there is, you know, I, I, I believe we need to legalize marijuana. We need to, um, you know, decriminalize other um, aspects of what we're looking at in terms of drug addiction and, um, and, and not criminalize those behaviors and, 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 and those public health issues. Um, there is what we need to do to take profit out of the criminal justice system. So that's part of my plan also, which is about shutting down private prisons. It's also about dealing with the issues like asset forfeiture that can impact the entire family. Um, there's also the, what we need to do around bail reform and taking um, the, 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 because it's an economic justice issue as much as it is anything. Um, there is the work that we need to do, which my plan calls for that is about law enforcement accountability. Um, because when you, when there is that kind of accountability and consequence, I think we are going to see that there is a real deterrent then a real deterrent around bad police behaviors, around bad law enforcement behaviors that includes prosecutors, by the way. Um, but every single one of those are huge, mm -hmm. right? And know that in some instances it will even take a, a shift, a paradigm shift of the way folks think about, yeah, like it, it takes that too. I mean, you think about some of the things that had to take place for a Civil Rights Act of 1964 to pass. Mm -hmm. So which of those, knowing they're all huge, all need to happen. But if you had to pick one, like I'm starting here, what would it be? 
But I, Angela, I have to tell you, I, I've never been that person to yeah. say there's only one no, way. No, no, no. Well, you know, I mean, that. but meaning that I do believe, I, I, I do believe that we have the capacity. I mean, you're totally right. Listen, there is so much that as a prosecutor I wanted to take on and I knew I couldn't get it all done and I had to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I agree with that Just point. Just the starting point. Yeah, no, I agree with point. that point. But I, I do believe that there are, you know, I do believe that there is already a movement afoot and, you know, modesty aside, I've been a leader in the Senate around bail reform where my co-sponsor is Rand Paul from Kentucky, yeah. a Republican. He and I agree on almost nothing, but we agree on this. So I believe there is a move afoot that is about understanding this is an economic justice issue, which is that, you know, poor people, economically poor people cannot you know, are, are, are sitting in jail for weeks, months, and years just because they don't have the money to get out. Um, Reentry. Back to the first point that you were making, Dee. That has to, that, uh, I was one of the first in the nation as a prosecutor to create a reentry program that worked. Now, thankfully, you see them around the country, which is about putting local resources, community resources into getting folks who are, who are, who have either been arrested, um, that, which is what I did, or previously incarcerated and getting them jobs and counseling and support. Um, sensing reform. You know, we're, we're starting to do that. Eric Holder started to do it under the Obama administration. You know, we passed that first step back that, you know, it was a small step, but it was a step. Um, but sentencing reform, there's, there's a movement afoot there. I think the, the law enforcement accountability piece in terms of creating a national standard for that is a major step. Mm -hmm. That is a, is a real necessary next step. And that would be one of my areas of priority. That has to happen because it's back to the first point about trust. It is about accountability. It is about, you know, um, justice. So that we also, since we've talked about accountability a lot today, um, so we're also accountable. What do we think should be a first step? Not the only step, yeah. the first step on a criminal justice um, platform that is super comprehensive, very ambitious. Um, not saying that it's not important. I think most of us agree with um, the pillars that are in this plan, the fact that these things need to be addressed. But Jamira, what do you think needs to be? <laughs> I mean, you're right here. I know <laughs> so you. Much, but, um, I would say the first thing that comes to mind is to reevaluate how the war on drugs has impacted communities of color, particularly mm -hmm. looking at marijuana yeah. and the generational impl implications of that. Yeah. So that would be my number one. How do we yeah. reevaluate that? Yeah. What about you, Phil? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the, 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 enti <laughs> the entirety the of, of yeah. uh, my adult life has uh, been about everybody who cares about something measures it, mm -hmm. right? So businesses measure profit, yeah. right? Um, students keep track of their grades, families keep track of the height of their kids with pencil markings and door frames. We yeah. all got to measure it. And we have not measured justice in the criminal justice system. And if we haven't measured it, can you imagine the neglect that that communities feel from that. Um, but measurement isn't just about the data, it's about the analysis. Yes, right. that's right. right? I, I know you know. Yes. Um, so, you know, I'm excited mm -hmm. about a national policing systems review board, and I'm excited about um, block grants that would go to the states. That's right. Um, to make sure that it's not just, oh, we're gonna make our data public, but we're gonna figure out the right ways to hold ourselves accountable. Because it seems easy mm -hmm. just say, make the data public, right? But the harder part is, what That's part right. of this outcome belongs to us? What part of this can we do first to fix? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I'm glad to see it in the plan. And yeah. it, 
I'm biased. It's the thing that's that's first because it's what I've been doing my whole whole adult life. It's also the thing that I think comes first in terms of setting the system up for trust. Mm-hmm. I think about the money. Um, when you talk about allocating funds to these different spaces yeah. to be able to attack these issues, mm-hmm. how does the money make it into spaces that are really having an impact mm-hmm. in the community versus the money making it to some organization ran by, you know, some person who's just going to take all of the money yeah. and put it in their pocket and yeah. use the leftovers to buy yeah. little Lunchables for kids in the projects. Yep. Um, yep. So how do you make sure we're making sure the money's going in the right place? Mm-hmm. And then how do we invest more into things that work? So I know in Baltimore, the Aim to Be More program is mm-hmm. the model based on back on track. Yeah. And um, I know a success story. Um, one of my good friends, Bruce, was facing 20 years, first time mm-hmm. offender. Mm-hmm. And he was able to get job training. Um, mm-hmm. He's home. He's trying to go to college. Mm-hmm. He has a girlfriend. He's living his life. He's a hey, great Bruce. kid. Yeah, you know, he's doing, he's doing, he's doing, he, shout out to Bruce. He's doing, his thing. <laughs> he's doing his thing and that yeah. works. So how can something like that be mandatory or how can we take stories like that and elevate them so high that all of these different systems see you know look this person got caught up in a bad situation we're gonna make sure they get the resources they need because i know everything that happened to me in my life um a huge element of it forced me into the wrong direction so i know why i've done the things i've done but uh, Mm -hmm. i was lucky enough to be able to overcome that he was lucky enough to be able to overcome that because of of that system so how do we Mm -hmm. highlight that and take these models and and make Mm -hmm. other places use them Mm -hmm. so i'm gonna go back this way um She's like, it's one A, B, and C. <laughs> well, there is a through line, but I want to talk about each specifically and then, and then get there. Um, back on track was the model for the program that you've described. And I'm going to tell you, when I started back on track, I would say to the graduates, and I attended every graduation, and I'm talking about young people who were picked up for drug sales, young adults who, if the system had had their way, would be felons for life. And I saw who they are. And I said, nope, we're going to have this program that's about training and, and, and parenting classes. A lot of the young men and women, right, parents. And I got graduation robes for each one of them for our graduation. Because, you know, many of them had not graduated high school. Um, I also knew that I was looking at young people who a lot of them had never had another human being stand up and applaud them. And it's an extraordinary thing what that does for you and your ego and sense of self to have had someone at some stage in your life applaud you, like literally applaud you, right? Um, And we did all that. And I would say to each of the participants at the graduation ceremony, your success is going to benefit some young man or woman around this country who you will never meet and they will never know your name. But because we have proved this is a success here, it's going to happen around the country. And so I have to thank you for sharing the Baltimore story based on the back on track story. Cause I told these young people that that would happen. And Bruce, Bruce is a testament, is a testament to all of that. And so part of it is when we talk about changing the system, we need to keep showing people that when you do this kind of thing, it really works. So we've got to keep telling Bruce's story. Because there are still so many places in America that have not figured out the Bruce story. So that's part of my intention 
as president because I've actually seen it. I know how it works. I know Bruce's story. So I want to say that, right, which is we're still in the midst of trying to help people see a system that they've never seen before and imagine something they've never seen before. But thankfully, because of those of us who have charted new territory, we can we don't have to ask them to imagine. We can actually show them how it works. Mm-hmm. I am with you on that data thing. When I listen, that was one of the reasons that I became attorney general. And I said, this is the second largest department of justice. We got all this data. I'm opening this up. And I'm going to tell you there was incredible resistance to that. But we did it. And exactly to your point, because I knew within government and within the government I was working in, there were not there was not the the capacity, much less the interest in analyzing it. So I threw it all out there for all the smart people to analyze it like good. Here, here you go. There you go. Do it. Right. And so that's part of what's behind my plan around creating a national database is so that there's going to have to be that partnership where all the smart people at universities, all the activists will then have the information to challenge and to put the checks and balances on government. To check themselves around their theories and around their practices. Um, So that's why that is a priority in terms of the, the whole war on drugs and the failure of it at its core. I do believe that at its core, it ex- that the failure of the war on drugs and how we've been approaching um, d- drugs in America is an indictment on the fact that one of the biggest public policy failures of our country has been to not address mental health. And we are paying an extreme price for that. And so that's why a large part of my plan actually is about what we need to do to put resources into federal grants, into federal funding around mental health and the resources that are necessary in communities to actually address it through a variety of ways that, again, gets back to the point about diagnosis and treatment of trauma. It gets, you know, into just dealing with the issues of of what we need to have in terms of meaningful programs around substance abuse. I hear what you're saying about, you know, people who set up in communities saying they're helping everybody, but they're not really doing much. And we need to have audits and accountability for that. I'm with you. I know. I know. Including, (laughs) including a lot of, I mean, we're getting into the detail, including a lot of substance abuse treatment programs. Oh my God. For which there is no real standard. No, but like that's serious because you've got to go because you've got families who the, the court system that, you know, in many communities, there are no substance abuse programs. So, we're arresting people for a drug addiction issue. There are no treatment facilities and there is nowhere for them to go except that they're being sent to prisons and jails. And we are treating jails and prisons as just major substance abuse treatment programs. And by the way, they're not getting treated there either. Or if they do, it doesn't. Right. And there's no continuum of service. And so that's why a big part of my plan is about dealing with the, the, the piece that has to be about meaningful federal resources being put into mental health and treatment, which includes um, the substance abuse treatment and meaningful substance abuse treatment. Because we know when, you know, rich people get it. Rich people get it, right? They go to Betty Ford, they go to all this, and they're, they're fine, right? We recognize that somebody in the community has a substance abuse um, challenge issue. It's a health issue. And there is literally nowhere for them to go. And then we expect that they're going to just be fine. And of course they're not because they have a health issue that has not been addressed. So 
So we don't have a lot of time left, um, but we haven't spent that much time on private prisons. I know that's a, a big issue um, of concern for a number of people in our community. And since you all are up in Philly so hard, I'm going to bring up a Pennsylvania example. Um, there's a judge who was recently sentenced um, because of his funneling juveniles mm -hmm. to a private prison for a kickback. And you speak in your plan about trying to take that private um, profit incentive out of um, the criminal justice system. That's just one bad example that we know about, right? Yeah. Um, no shade, Philly. But I, had to I, I felt it was shade, actually. <laughs> it actually. I still wasn't, actually can't get it wasn't Philly. I'm like, am I related to I mean, this? Yeah. No, it, was it's a not Philly. it might be a distant cousin. Sunlight, really, not <laughs> shade. Right? It was. We're just showing what's happening. The sun, sunlight on. But the he's issue. not the only example, and of course, we know it's um, a bipartisan yeah. or nonpartisan issue. It is one that knows no geographical lines in this country. Um, so what? And 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 also, let's just be clear. That you, an associated issue is that you have previous members of this president's administration yeah. who have left the administration to go and be on boards of private detention facilities. Yeah. Yes. So they have so, a, a profit incentive to yeah, criminalize people. And, and, and this is the point. People, the, mo the business model by its very nature is as follows. Certain human beings are making a lot of money off the incarceration of other human beings. There should never be profit associated with incarceration. Period. Period. How can we call ourselves a civil society? How can we call ourselves a society that values justice? If we have systems in place where people literally make money, profit, off the incarceration of other human beings. My hope is that that's also, I mean, that's not, that sounds like a principle that you've just stated. Yes, it is. Um, so my hope is that comes out in immigration as well. Uh, yes, as bad and that's why I brought that up. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. why I brought, and this is also a moment for, you know, real significant coalition building, mm -hmm. Yeah, which is so important because, um, you know, obviously there's strength in, in numbers and, and building the, the point about the value and the principle. Yeah, because I mean, as, as, as bad as it is within sort of the traditional criminal justice system, mm -hmm. private prisons are even a larger percentage of our immigration detention facilities, yeah. right? And so you see a reciprocal relationship between the folks who are lobbying for particular kinds of immigration detention laws and the people who are building those private incarceration facilities. I'm glad you said that. That's the biggest part of the conversation that ties everything together. One person's poverty is another person's paycheck. Mm -hmm. And that's the American way. That's as American as... <laughs> Apple pie and high fructose corn syrup, like you know. And but people, they're not gonna. People aren't gonna. They're not gonna say it. Like people yes. aren't gonna. Thank you for saying it, but people aren't really gonna say it. And I think sometimes I struggle. And just like you know this, you know this. You, we know this, and us knowing this is like a different type of trauma that people look like us are gonna have to pay extra to be yeah. able to experience success in this country. And you know, I think. Oh no! I think therapy should be mandatory for young black people. I think if you're a kid, I think, I think I think you should. Be I talk to my therapist every Sunday. <laughs> I think it should be incentivized. Oh, bless I think, your heart. I think like in these public schools, I think therapy should be incentivized. Like if you go to therapy like once or twice a week, it's set up inside of your school. You get like tickets to go to like an amusement park. I, I, I don't agree know. with you. I was part I of. Know, I was part of setting up one of the first in the country. This called the the Child Wellness Center, um, with a woman by the name of Nadine Burke Harris, no relation, um, that was about 
but that was about setting up in in, in, in Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco where the a- annual income, household income was $15,000, predominantly black neighborhood with as by no coincidence in terms of the, the, the household income numbers, also the highest rates of homicide. And it was a whole thing that we set up that was about a, a wellness center in the community. But here's the thing that we have to deal with too, to your, to your point, there's a stigma. And we got to deal with that also. There's a real stigma. I was a, I was the grand marshal of the Juneteenth parade many years ago. I've actually done a couple times, but when um, I, at, at the end of the parade, I went, everybody had their booth set up and there was a booth and there was this glossy, like 24 page pamphlet, clearly an expensive piece, multiple colors, all that. And, um, you, and on the front, it had an artistic rendering of a, a, a slave in chains. You start reading through it, it had graphs, and it showed the rise in community health, mental health dollars, the rise in um, drug addiction. It started, it went on to talk about the, which we all know, the, the racism that existed in, 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 in certain sects of, of psychology and how that evolved. And basically to suggest that black folks should not get mental health treatment. And I'm like, what is this about? And at the back, there were these things and, and well, who's paying for this? And it was, you know, like Scientologists. Oh, they can kick rocks. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> there, there, there are, but we also have to deal with the fact that there are people who are also taking advantage of the stigma. Mm-hmm. And we have to deal with that. I mean, like if we're going to have a candid conversation mm-hmm. about the challenges around we have around getting mental health to the folks who need it and therapy to the folks who need it. We also have to, I mean, that's a whole, that's a different, yeah. that well, we can have a different it's not, conversation. But it's not a different question, right? Because what we're talking about is a fundamental mistrust of institutions that have historically that failed vulnerable communities. That is yeah. true. Right? So it's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the same way that I've got um, cousins and uncles and aunties who are like, oh, I ain't going to the doctor. They I'm get my money in the bank, right? right? My I'm, still keeps I'm, I'm going to put it in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wallet or, or, or the in the bra. Bra. Right? The bra. <laughs> <laughs> I don't wear one, so I wouldn't go. But I, we wouldn't judge you. No, this is the same thing. You know, with, right uh, in time, with the a, conversation has gone left, pin, right when we're fresh out of time. My grandmother still does it. Folks have lost faith in certain kinds of government institutions. So I know you said we're about to run out of time. No, we did. Okay. But go carry on. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about when we started. So I'm just saying, like, um, can you, as we're walking out the door, can you talk about, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about the conversation I have with my mother. She does not know that I'm here yet. Um, but, but we talk about politics all the time. She says, I want someone to tell me why I can trust that this will be different. Right. I want someone to tell me why the, the plans that are coming together are going to look different for black. I and mean, she grew up segregated North Carolina. Yeah. Right. Um, and you have at least as much, if not more experience on this issue than anybody else who's going to be in the race. Right. Can't ever predict what's going to happen. But but can you say something to my mom on that? Because I know she's going to be mad if I was here and I didn't ask. I know firsthand how the system works from the inside out. And. With that comes a level of authority to dictate how the reform needs to look and to know the levers within the system that need to be pushed to get it to where it needs to go. 
I can walk in a room and never, no one can ever question my, my background and my commitment to public safety. When I talk about all the reforms that are in my plan and why they are necessary, no one can question whether that is somehow going to be subversive of a system that has as its goal public safety. No one can ever question my credibility on that. So this is not about trying to reform a system for the sake of reform. It's about understanding that this is actually a much smarter way to do the business of creating healthy communities. And everybody benefits from that. Um, you can also share with your mother that my plan is the only one that is very specific about what needs to happen around law enforcement accountability. And I say that having served a, a, a career in law enforcement, I know that ne there needs to be greater accountability. I, nobody can ever say, oh, you're trying to be subversive or to. No, I, I know. I know what needs to happen. Um, and then the, the last point I'd make is this. Look, one of the most powerful tools in the hands of the president of the United States is when she holds that microphone. In terms of her ability to then inform perspective about a variety of issues. When I hold that microphone on this issue, there will be an ability along with the background and credibility to influence perspective about how this system actually needs to function to do the work of justice. Period. Well, we ended now on that period. <laughs> that period. That period. That was period. A period. Dot. And the paragraph closed the book. Thank you all so, so, so much for, for this. This is. Thank you guys for taking the time and everybody's busy schedule. I really do appreciate it. And, but, you know, this is obviously one of many conversations. I don't want it to just because we have lights and cameras. So um, let's stay in touch and keep keep talking and, 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 and give me your candid and credible and critical feedback about how we can continue to make the plan better in terms of not only how we talk about it, but how we actually develop it out and implement it. Cause I, I will say this, the time that we took to come up with this plan was time that was about meeting with you all know this and talking with folks about the details because this is not for me about some pretty speech or some grand gesture. It's literally about what I intend to do. The plan, the whole point of the plan was this is what we will actually do. So let's make it real. Let's make it substantial. Right. Because we're going to make it happen. Yeah. So I would just say outcomes like outcomes like we all plan to do things in our life. And yeah. sometimes those things go great and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean we need to switch the goal. It means we just need to adjust the plan. And I think everybody in general, especially in the way things work in this country, needs to focus more on outcomes. Like okay. you plan on saving a community and you bought everybody coats, but they didn't need coats. They needed shoes. That's you know what I'm saying? Like, so relevant. <laughs> the prox relevant. Those, those proximities, those things you learn from mm -hmm. proximity. So outcomes, what are the outcomes? That's right. Mm. And how do we measure them? Yeah. Mm -hmm. For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God in everything I write here. Yeah.